and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And the seven peals of thunder had spoken. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and thing, and things in it and the earth and things in it and the sea and things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. And he, as he preached to his servants, the prophets... Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. He said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations, tongues and kings. This is God's holy inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us now as we consider the meaning of this 10th chapter, this interlude. Help us, Lord, to see the benefit that is provided for us there. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, if you would like, there will be a moment later that I will ask us to turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Uh, so if you'd like to go there now and hold your place there, that would be uh, maybe a good idea. Well, I greet you, saints, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you once again on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue now our study through uh, the Apocalypse of John. The last time that we considered Revelation... We examine the sixth trumpet and the demonic army marching from the east. We learned, that's right, we learned of four wicked angels who had been bound at the great river Euphrates. They were given permission in this sixth trumpet not only to deceive, but to kill. They were given authority to kill one third of mankind. These demonic angels do not just come from the eastern part of the world. We remember that from last week, that we don't look to to Iran, nor do we look to Russia or to China as um, a place where a demon will rise. But uh, these demonic forces come from the four corners of the world. They come from, from all nations, and they come to oppose uh, the church, but they primarily come to to judge the wicked. They are coming to judge the wicked. An important point that we should all be familiar with by now is that as we're seeing these demonic forces that, that have been released, that are inflicting deception and death upon the wicked, we, we are not looking forward to the future 
as if sometime in the future these judgments will break forth. But rather, the last days have been in motion since the resurrection of Christ. So, the sixth seal has been broken. The sixth or the sixth uh, trumpet has blasted. Uh, the demonic forces they are uh, coming from the four corners of the world. They, they are bringing forth deception. They are killing the wicked. The sixth trumpet has blown, and it will continue to increase and intensify until the seventh and final trumpet when Christ returns. There is only one trumpet left. It is the trumpet that blasts and announces the great and glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as the plagues of Egypt intensified, as the the day of the Exodus, God's deliverance drew near, so it is with the church. We live in in a type of, of Egypt. And we are true Israel. And Christ will return to deliver his people from this wicked world. These judgments of God are poured out as a judgment not against the righteous, but against the wicked. The wicked refuse to repent of their evil deeds. They continue to harden their hearts to the gospel of Christ. And the Lord will increase his judgments on them just before he returns in glory. He hardens their hearts, right? We learned last week that these judgments that come, they're not intended to cause the wicked to repent of their sins. That's not the intention of these judgments. Matter of fact, these judgments come so that just like Pharaoh, they would increase the hardness of the hearts of the wicked. Uh, God did not bring the plagues upon Egypt so that Pharaoh would be saved. He brought the plagues upon Egypt so that Pharaoh actually would be hardened and lost. We shall discuss this today. That's nothing to celebrate, though. It's a terrible thing for the wicked to be lost. It's a terrible thing for the, for the sinner to be to die in his sin. And, and I say, we'll, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. Lord, remind me. But the comfort for the church is this: that in the midst of this providential and escalating judgments on those who oppose Christ and His church, that God Himself will have the final word. This is the encouragement that God himself will have the final word. God is holy. God is true. God shall execute justice and righteousness. And he shall do so for the righteous and he shall do so for the wicked. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now today in this 10th chapter of John's vision, we are giving given yet another interlude. You will remember the interlude between the sixth and seventh seals that John is given this vision of 144,000, a great multitude in heaven who are, who are worshiping God. And here, there is yet another interlude. Chapter 10, what is it? It's an interlude. Uh, some theologians call this a parenthesis. It extends to about the, 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 the middle of the 11th chapter. We'll, we'll see this, this parenthesis, this, this interlude continue until John is shown the seventh trumpet. It is important that we ask the question, what is this interlude? What is this this parenthesis, if you will? The answer is, it is a pause. The answer is that it is a pause. What is chapter 10? It's a pause. It's intended to be a time for us to contemplate. 
There are times when we call to worship and, and we say, let us now contemplate. We, we'll finish the sermon and we'll say, let us now contemplate. What are we contemplating in this 10th chapter? We are contemplating, we are pausing to reflect on, we are, uh, if, if in the words of the, the psalmist, it is a selah. It is a pause in worship. We are worshiping, we are pausing to contemplate the fact that God is holy and true. You know that language, God is holy and true. The question was asked by those who were experiencing God's judgment at the end of the sixth chapter. The, the great, by those who were experiencing God's judgment, the great day of their, the one who sits on the throne, the great day of their wrath has come. Who, the wicked ask, who is able to stand when the wrath of God comes? Last week was hard, wasn't it? Last week's sermon was, was a, was a, in many ways a dark sermon. With light at the end of the tunnel, praise be to God. Last week's chapter was a, a, a heavy chapter. We are told of, of demonic forces that are unleashed, not, not will be, that are unleashed today. That, that, that men and women will experience a darkness and devastating things and yet Still, they will not repent of their sins. And many of us said, we know people like that. We know people who have gone through through dark times, devastating times, sicknesses, illnesses, tragedies, and yet still, in spite of all of these things that they've, they've seen and lived through, survived through, they won't turn to the one who has allowed them to survive. They still won't repent. And we are being told in the ninth chapter, things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. There is an intensification of, of these plagues, if you will. There's an intensification of the demonic forces that are rushing upon humanity, deceiving and killing. It is intensifying. It is exactly the way our Lord said it would be. We should not be surprised when we see it. We should be grieved, but we should pray. Our Lord promised in Matthew 24 that there, there would be wars and rumors of wars. Nations would rise against nations. There would be famines and earthquakes, lawlessness. Uh, false prophets would arise. People's love for one another would grow cold. This is intensifying. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that some of you will say, uh, 50 years ago when I was young, the things that are going on would have never... You would see it in little parts, but you wouldn't see it the way it... And then our kids will say, and Lord willing, if, if the Lord should tarry in 50 years, they will say, you, when I was a kid, it was, it was increasing, but now it's everywhere. It's quite obvious, isn't it? That, that this, there is an intensification of these things. You guys, I'm seeing some of your faces. I know, when you were young, when I was young, imagine, these things were not as they were. And for some of you others who are older than I, you would say, we, we, we would never see these things. There is an intensification and it's, it's, it's spreading, isn't it? It's becoming more widespread. It's not just isolated in one city. Now it's in all cities. Darkness seems to be closing in. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy of this kind of lawlessness. This forsaking God's holy written law on the hearts of men. That, that, that there, was, there would be this form of godliness that lacks true power. And these would be taking place in an increasing manner before our Lord returns. Well, we would all then acknowledge that, that Christ must be at the doorstep. What are we 
What are we? What are we to do in such times? A dear brother said to me, I, I, and I said this last week, we can't even watch Disney, because a dear brother said to me, I, I, I canceled my subscription. I can't even watch things that used to be wholesome. Uh, it used to be enjoyable for the family to come around. I can't even watch these things anymore. Where do I spend my money? Uh, how do I know that the persons that I'm giving my money to, the, the flower that I'm buying, is not going toward Planned Parenthood? How do I know that the, 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 the juice that I'm buying is not going toward causes that I, that, that I, that I disagree with? How are we to live? When our views are constantly being silenced, when, when you are constantly being called uh, bigots, and when you are constantly being called people who are uh, intolerant, who are hateful, who are phobic of everything, how do we maintain our testimony and not succumb to the opposition of the world and also not silence ourselves and say, I just won't say anything so that... I won't seem like I'm the outsider and cause anybody to be offended. Maybe I'll just keep my mouth closed. Dennis Johnson, I, I thought this was wonderful, he asked, and it, it's more eloquently than I could say, when evil is everywhere and the world is ripe for judgment, can God protect His own? When economies crash, when civil order falters, and social fabric frays, when restraint and respect give way to rude aggression and, and random violence, when greed and animal appetite reign supreme, when consensus and community decompose into culture wars, the question weighs on the hearts of God's people, can God keep this little flock safe and able to stand? This little flock that seems defenseless, that's, that is in the crossfire of the world, can we have such confidence? Can we have any confidence in such perilous times? Can we know that we will be preserved in such perilous times? Dear brothers and sisters, saints of God, we have a promise, an oath from God who cannot lie, that we shall be preserved unto eternal life. An oath from God. We have an oath from the one who does not break his oaths. We shall reign with Christ in glory. Did God not preserve Noah? The preacher of righteousness? When the waters of judgment came upon the world? Then he will preserve you. Did God not rescue righteous, righteous Lot when he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone? then He will surely rescue you, the righteous, from the deception of the enemy. Was God not with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Then so He shall be with us when the, the flames and the heat of the judgments that God will bring upon the wicked intensify in this world. You shall be preserved by God. You have a promise from His Word, and His Word is His oath. You shall be preserved. This is who our God is. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He shall not change. Praise be to God. It gets darker. But God has said, you are light. You who used to be darkness, you are now light. 
So then fear not. Don't be dismayed. What this 10th chapter is, is an encouragement to you, to me, that God will keep His oath. God will preserve the righteous, even as He judges the wicked. The great day of the Lord is come. Who is able to stand? God provides the answer. Those who are sealed by God, you, and you, and you, and you, you are able to stand. Between the six and seven trumpets, there is a series of complex visions. But before the scenes of John are revealed, know this going forward. The point of this chapter is this. Reflect, pause, contemplate that in spite of the darkness that we saw last week, God has made His promise that you will not be lost. Let's consider then three points with God's help. Number one, the strong angel and the little book. Number one, the strong angel and the little book. This is verses one through seven. The strong angel and the little book. As these verses <clears throat> open, John is given a vision and, and the phrase is, is an interesting one of another, I say in air quotes, another strong angel. Listen to what, what, where he's coming from. He is descending from heaven. And it would be good to have your Bible, you can see it. There seems to be a shift now from John's position. John receives most of these visions, it, it seems as though he's actually in heaven, although he's not. He's receiving this vision as if he was in heaven, but he's not. Now, John is, is receiving this, this, this vision from a different location, it appears, because the angel is descending out of heaven. So it, it appears as maybe John is, is now standing back on earth. And as he's standing on earth, he's receiving this vision as if a strong angel was coming down out of heaven. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2, John sees a strong angel again. The strong angel in chapter 5 and 2 is calling out with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? The strong angel from chapter 2 is, is, is asking the question, Who's strong enough? Who, who's worthy enough? Now we have another strong angel who also cries out with a loud voice. But before we consider what's in his hand, let's consider this strong angel. Like the angel in Revelation 5.2, this angel is an angel, but, but maybe he's more than that because he's called a strong angel, not just an angel. Now, this could be the same angel from Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2. Could be the same angel. Same strong angel. Or it could be another strong angel. Nevertheless, this strong angel is described in, in extraordinary or extraordinary ways. He's given attributes. Attributes that are only really given to God, especially in the Old Testament, and to Christ in the New Testament. Consider some of these attributes. This strong angel comes down from heaven. The strong angel is wrapped in a cloud. That, that's a, an allusion to the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. Also, God is usually enwrapped or enveloped in, in clouds. This angel has a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. It, it, it radiates like the sun, full of glory. His legs 
Legs are like pillars of fire. Allusion to uh, God in, in the wilderness, uh, with the children of Israel in the wilderness, but also God in judgment. And this angel stands upon, as we'll see now, heaven, one foot, and earth, the other foot. That's pretty extraordinary if this is just an angel. Upon hearing these different descriptions, it would be hard not to conclude that this angel is not just a strong angel, but that this angel is in fact Christ himself. Now, there is some debate that this angel is not Christ, but that this angel is nothing more than an angel. Now, in saying nothing more than an angel, that's not to to, uh, detract from the power of an angel, but it is to say that they are not Christ. That's what the debaters would say. One of the reasons why they say this is because the word angel is never used to describe Christ anywhere else in Revelation. Angel always means angel. You'll remember that in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2, the strong angel, though he is strong, has a pressing question. And he shouts it with a loud voice, doesn't he? The question that the strong angel of Revelation 5 two has is, Who is worthy? Because he's not. Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? So, John begins to cry and to weep. Because it appears as though not even the strong angel is worthy to open this book, to break its seals. But the grief, I'm not, I don't mean to rhyme here, the, the, brie, the, the grief that John gives was brief. Uh, because he is encouraged by one of the elders to, to stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seals. So the elder says, there is one worthy. It is the Lion of Judah. He is able to break the seals. Only one with equal power, equal authority, has the right to to break the seals from the one who has given the book. God himself gives the book. Only one who is equal in authority can break the book of God. It is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? One equal in power, authority, divinity, the glory, and glory, the Son of God, Christ. So now in this 10th chapter, this strong angel descends from heaven. He's holding a book that appears to already be open. He delivers it to John so that John can prophesy. We're not told if this is the same book from chapter 5, but we could assume that it is the same book. That it has already been opened. That it's in the hand of someone who has opened it already. We can assume, though we should avoid assumptions most times, that Christ has opened this book. And that Christ is also holding this book. Now, I may be in the the minority. Um, There's a few of our brothers and a few commentators that I read that that don't believe that this is Christ, but it is an angel. They believe that this is one who comes representing Christ. And they conclude that the application from this is that we should also reflect Christ. Now, I don't disagree with the fact that we should represent Christ, that we should um, be good witnesses. But I find it hard to embrace the notion that this is simply a representation of Christ and not Christ. G.K. Beale notes that this is uh, this being is divine, and not created first because he is clothed with the cloud. Let's, let's get through some of these things. If you're taking notes and you want to know, well, okay, why? First, because he's clothed with a cloud. In the Old Testament, God alone, G.K. Beale says, comes in heaven 
or to earth in a cloud. Daniel 7, uh, 13, the Son of Man also. Comes in clouds. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14, John sees a white cloud and sitting there is one like the Son of Man. So clouds are most often than not, almost always probably, associated with God himself. Bear with me if you will. The rainbow is another one. It's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 1, which we'll get back to. I told you to turn to Ezekiel 2. It's an allusion to Ezekiel 1, where the glory of God is described as, as an appearance of man. And around that man is a rainbow. It appears as though John is drawing from Ezekiel with this cloud, and John is drawing from Ezekiel with this rainbow. And Ezekiel is also told to eat a book that will make his stomach bitter. No face of an angel is ever described as the sun. No angel is ever compared to as a lion. No angel ever speaks, and when he speaks, seven peals of thunder come forth. With all these evidences, I would conclude that the angel is divine, that the angel is Christ himself. The strong angel is Christ who brings John this little book. Now, let's draw our attention to this book, right? This book where the seals have been broken. It's a small book. It's called a little book. Even though it is the same book of chapter 5. Why is it small? It's, it's, it's small because the, the purpose is to show that it can be eaten. The book is small, small enough to eat. Same book. Differences is that in Revelation 5, God holds this book. Here the angel holds the book. Revelation 5, the lamb takes the book. Here John takes the book. Revelation 5... Praise erupts when the book is open. Revelation 10, there is bitter sweetness when the book is ingested and prophesied. Similarities, they're both open. Both held by Christ. The angel here, again an allusion to Ezekiel 2. Both are related to end time prophecy from Daniel chapter 12. And both, someone approaches the divine being to take, to take the book. And both concerns peoples, nations, tongues, and tribes. Therefore, we can conclude that it's the same book. Chapter 5, chapter 10, same book. Even though it's referred to as little. Now, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 2. Let's read that. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. uh, Driving home. Pastor Isaiah asked me a, a, a question that I knew he would ask. Why does all of that matter? And it, it was already in my notes. Because in going through all of these points and facts, some of us can get lost and go, okay, okay, what's the point? Well, you need to know the facts in order to know the point. The open book and the position of the strong angel where he stands, they're all related. It's not random. We're hearing all these different facts and sometimes we can get lost and say, "What's? why do I need to know all these things? We need to know all these things because we've just read chapter 9. You realize, saints, that the book is open. The book that was sealed... The seals have been broken. 
by one who is worthy to break those seals. What do the seals ultimately lead to? What's the seventh seal? It's the consummation of the kingdom. What's the seventh trumpet? It's the consummation of the kingdom. Christ returns. What's the seventh bowl? Which we'll get to. It's the return of Christ and you and I living in glory forever. What has just been released that we read of last week? The sixth trumpet. That we are living in perilous times. That we are living, as we said in the beginning of this this sermon, in dark times that, that are getting increasingly darker. And now we are given this vision of, of a strong angel who we believe is Christ. I believe is Christ. If you don't believe, that's okay. Who I believe is Christ, who has one foot on the sea and the other foot on the earth. He has one foot planted in heaven and one foot planted on earth. All of this matters and means something in relationship to the ninth chapter, one of the darkest chapters you'll ever hear. Because there is one who has his foot on heaven and on earth. There is one who, when he speaks, speaks as though a lion roars. There is one who says in Matthew chapter 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His feet are like burnished bronze. He's placing his foot on heaven and earth to tell us that he reigns, not these demonic forces. His his feet are firmly planted on all of creation like pillars of fire that won't be moved to let you and I know that judgment is coming and so is salvation. And when that time comes, there will be no more time. There will be no more delay. It matters because, again, at the very end of the chapter, we read of the wicked who who are rushing, who are who are being judged, yes, but who don't repent of their sin. Hearts grow colder. That means disdain for the church increases. What hope does the church have that she shall be protected in the midst of such darkness, persecution, and opposition? Christ answers that question for us. We are given a chapter to contemplate, a chapter and a half really, to contemplate he who comes down clothed in clouds and in a rainbow. We are given encouragement from he who, when he speaks, thunder and lightning strike, just like lightning struck at Mount Sinai. We are given encouragement from he who who stands on heaven and earth, that he will not stand by idle while his bride is opposed. The point is, there will come a time when evil will run its course. When all the kingdoms of the world will be swallowed up by the kingdom of God. When all nations, tribes, and tongues will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Christ encourages His church. Don't, and don't let all the points that were, were given leading up to that go past you because they matter. They uphold this. That it is Christ who has promised on oath that you shall be preserved. We saw these demonic forces who are unleashed. They're coming for the four winds of the earth. And yet there is one who puts one foot on heaven and one foot on earth. And what encouragement is is there for us? 
Oh, he is, he, he is sovereign. He rules. Not these demonic forces that are rushing. He is ruler over heaven and earth. That's our encouragement. That's why all of that matters. That's why all of that is important. Let's go to our second point, the angels, the strong angels oath. This is verses 3 to 7 as well. The divine angel <clears throat> cries aloud as when a lion roars. And with his loud cry come seven peals of thunder. The roaring lion is yet again an indication that this is in fact Christ, who back in chapter 5 is referred to again as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's at least an allusion, right? To what the prophets had said in Isaiah and Hosea, that God's voice is likened to a lion. John is about to record, this is interesting, uh, not that it all hasn't been, John is about to record what he has heard. He hears the, the, the lion roar and, and the seven peals of thunder, lightning come forth. And just as he's about to record what they say, he's told by God to seal up the seven peals of thunder, which have spoken and do not write them. This is reminiscent of both Daniel and Paul, who were shown heavenly things, but were not permitted to write them down. There's been much speculation from a, a wide range of theologians about what the seven peals of thunder are and what they're meant to represent. This, brothers and sisters, is a good example of not touching what God has forbidden. God said, don't touch it. Therefore, I will not spend the next 15 minutes speculating on what I think it might be. If God has said, don't touch it, then we don't touch it. <laughs> God in His infinite wisdom has determined that we are not allowed to know. It, it, we're, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, now seven thunders or lightnings. We could, we could assume that it's in that same pattern, but we're not allowed. Therefore, we'll press on. Let's be careful in this. We're to be faithful to say only what God has given us permission to say. We're to be faithful to Proclaim only what God has called us to proclaim and no more. Paul told Timothy, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce only quarrels. Quarreling about speculation is fruitless. In contrast, moving on, the preceding command to seal up the revelation of the thunders, the angel alludes to Daniel chapter 12 and makes an oath to God that reveals how redemptive history culminates. This is Daniel chapter 12. Listen to this and verse 7. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him, this is the Son of Man, swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as, the finish, as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these will be completed. The Son of Man, the angel, swears here by him who lives forever and ever that there will be no more delay of God's judgment. Now, for some, this oath proves that this is in fact not Christ speaking, but an angel. This angel swears by heaven that swearing an oath would be below the dignity of God or of Christ. Does Christ or does God ever swear on oath anywhere in Scripture? Genesis 22, 
Exodus 32, Isaiah 45, Jeremiah 49, Exodus chapter 20, and elsewhere. God swears on oath. Christ here is portrayed as a faithful witness, faithfully proclaiming God's decree to carry out His covenant promises. Now, Christ is not saying here, time is up. Therefore, when we we read this, we should not say, okay, it's over. Uh, Daniel says that there is a time, a times, and a time and a half. All of these events will be completed. And when they are, the end will come. I hope that makes sense. Christ is saying the same thing here. That when the time is complete, there will be no delay in the completion of that time. That makes sense. It's to be understood that when history is complete, when God has fulfilled all of His purposes, there will be no more delaying in His return. That His return will be immediate, with no delay. There will be no intermittent time. There will be no waiting. There will be no uh, hoping that that day will come. When God's purposes are complete, God in Christ Jesus will return. The previous chapter, the sixth trumpet has blasted. The forces of darkness have rushed upon sinful humanity. They are bringing deception and death. They have come because of man's sin against God who was holy. They've come because of the persecution of the wicked upon the church and Christ. They've come because the saints under the altar are praying to God that God would avenge their wrongful verdict and wrongful death. Remember the seven churches. Persecuted, opposed. They remained faithful unto death. And if they did, God promises in Christ that they would receive crowns of glory. Sixth chapter. God comforts His people, telling them, they will ask how long. He comforts them by saying, just a little while longer, until all of your fellow servants, your fellow brethren, who are killed, is completed. There was a purpose in God in even allowing even more righteous to die by the hand of the wicked. And now Christ comforts His bride in the darkest of her hour. Today, the last days. The darkest of our hour. The darkest of the church's hour is the last days. Not 50 years ago. uh, Not a 100 years ago. From the time that Christ rose from the dead, the hour has been been near. The the day has been dark. And it is increasingly becoming darker as as the day goes on. Morals are decaying by the moment. Truth is being trampled underfoot by the moment. Sin is being promoted and taught to children by the moment. Here's the comfort. Here's the oath that, that the angel swears. And are we not thankful for God's oaths? Are we not thankful that God gives an oath? There was an oath given in the garden that there would come one after man's sin and brought darkness into the world. There would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And are you not thankful for the Son of God in assuming our flesh that He came and fulfilled that oath? 
Not only did Christ sanctify fallen humanity by assuming our humanity, by dying, rising, and ascending in glory, but Christ also has made an oath that He will be with us and that He shall return. And when Christ returns, He's made an oath that He will bring His enemies under His feet and there will be no more delay. When all of His purposes, that means even all of the righteous who God has determined would die by the hand of the wicked, but by the decree of God, that when all of these things are complete, there will be no more delay. God is not delaying as as we think delaying is. God's purposes are still being fulfilled. You have family members who are still not saved. There are righteous people who have still not yet died. God's purposes will be complete. And when those purposes are complete... There will be no delay because there is no such thing as delay. God is fulfilling all of His purposes. To us, it's delay. To God, it's fulfilling all of His purposes. And when they are complete, there will be no delay. Revelation 10, 7. Then the mystery of God is finished. And He preached to His servants, the prophets. When God returns, when Christ returns... There will be no mystery. Mystery will be removed altogether because of the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. There will be no more mystery. You know you live in mystery right now, don't you? So do I. What's mysterious? We don't know when Christ will return. It's a mystery to us. Anybody who tells you they know when, where, how, They are a false prophet. Listen to them no longer. We don't know who will be saved. That's a mystery to us. Uh, We don't know how or when they will be saved. That is a mystery to us. We don't know how we will enter glory. Will it be by death or will we not taste death? All of those things are mystery. The mystery of God extends from the time of the exaltation of Christ until His glorious return. Amen. But when the seventh trumpet sounds, six have sounded so far, one more to blast. When it does, everything that we have ever wondered about here will be known. When the seventh trumpet blasts, then we will know when Christ returns. Amen. Then we will see in the seventh trumpet who has been saved and who has not been saved. When the seventh trumpet blasts, we shall be like him. Be as he is. Mystery here will be no more. In heaven, we shall still live in a type of mystery. We shall continue to learn more and more about God. We will adore him all the more. And that will be an eternal adoration, which will increase an eternal love and affection for God. When that time comes... All that we don't know now will be known. And Christ has promised on oath that when that happens, there will be no delay. It will happen immediately and finally. These are good things to reflect on after the ninth chapter. What's the last point? Third, John's commission. And and this is when we'll go to Ezekiel chapter 2. This is verses 8 through 11. They are appropriate in light of the the previous point. John is commanded by one who stands on the sea 
and on the land to take the little book that has been opened and he is commanded to eat the little book. In light of everything that John has seen, John is now commanded to take this word and to ingest it. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 2 where the prophet is likewise commanded to take God's word and proclaim it. John is to take this message and to prophesy, to speak God's word. And God still speaks today as this message is proclaimed. Look at the context in which Ezekiel is called to proclaim this message. Ezekiel chapter 2. And let's consider the similarities between the two calls. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's not a long one. Then he said to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak to you. And he spoke to me. And he spoke to me. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, that's huge, they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you. And you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence. For they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not. For they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. When he had spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back and written on on it were lamentations, mourning and woe. What similarities between John's call and Ezekiel's call? John is to take this little book as Ezekiel and to ingest it. The words are words of judgment. They are a call to repent. Whether they listen or not, they are a call to repent to the wicked because God's judgment is coming. He's to proclaim God's judgment to a rebellious people, to a stubborn people. Whether they listen or not, He is to proclaim the message. Brothers and sisters, to those of you who know people that are not believers, whether they listen or not, you are to proclaim the message. It will be sweet coming out of your mouth, but bitter at the same time. Sweet coming out of your mouth because it is truly God's word, bitter. Because some people will not listen, and they will. They will incur the judgment of God. John is sent like Ezekiel as a prophet to speak to many peoples, to nations, to tongues, and to kings, to all people. John speaks God's word. And it is a warning to the wicked and an encouragement to the righteous. Judgment for the wicked is, it's bittersweet. And I'd like to conclude this sermon by considering the the bittersweetness of God's judgment. The prophets, they can take pleasure in the pronouncement of God's judgment. I, I need to say that very emphatically. And so can the church. But not because we desire vengeance. We are not some kind of sick, sadistic people who just want to see people burn. That's not us. It's not even God. 
Rather, the prophets and the apostles and the church, they take pleasure. They rejoice in the judgment of God because, brothers and sisters, it's the will of God. Whatever the will of God is, we rejoice in it because it is the wisdom of God. And God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. His knowledge is higher than our knowledge. His ways are not like our ways. We would like things to be done a certain way, but we're not God. We would like things to, to, to operate in a certain way, but we are not God. God is God. There was a, an old radio host. His name is J. Vernon McGee. Some of you might remember him. One, I heard him once say that God does what he wants because he is God. And if you know his voice, J. Vernon McGee has a very distinct voice because God is God and you are not. And if you want to be God, he, he said, then get your own earth. Whatever God's will is, we submit to it. And we also rejoice in it, regardless of how bitter it may be at times. God is infinite in knowledge. That's why we rejoice. Infinite in wisdom, infinite in holiness. And we submit our wills, our limited wills. We submit our desires, our unholy desires. And we submit our wisdom, our finite wisdom to His. We can take pleasure in the judgment of God because God is righteous. God is just and God is holy. And when He judges the wicked, those perfections of God are on full display. We can rejoice in the judgment of God because the prayers of the church are answered. We are vindicated from those who have wrongly accused us. Don't you want justice? Don't you want those who are falsely accusing you of being bigots and intolerant and, and being uh, less than human? Don't you want justice? Well, God will give it. And we will rejoice in that day. God has promised on oath that these things will come to pass and, and it's meant to encourage us. The other side of that is it is also bitter. We're not laughing at the wicked. We're weeping for them. We're not pointing our finger as the older brother does to the little brother when they get in trouble. Told you. We're like Paul who grieved over the Jews who were heading toward destruction. He said, I wish I could take their place. I wish... If it were in God's will that, that I could take their place so that they could be saved. Don't you go to family functions and look around at your unbelieving family members and friends and say, I wish you just knew how good God is. I wish you knew how God could save you from this sin. I wish you knew that there is a different life provided for you if you would just turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And isn't it bitter to you when you pray for them and you encourage them and you don't see a change? Because you know they are heading toward a Christless eternity. It saddens us. And if I've made it, if, I, if I've communicated in any kind of way over these past few sermons, the, the, the wicked will be judged, that there's some kind of, of joy in that. I apologize because that's not that's not meant to be taken. That's not the point that's that's to be made at all. 
unless God in His salvific grace gives grace to unbelievers that we know and love, they will suffer and they will be a part of this judgment. The proclamation of it is sweet because it is God's word, but there's an enduring bitterness too. Because judgment is coming to the wicked. Dear saints, what do we do? Well, be encouraged, number one. I don't want you to to be discouraged as maybe some of us were last week. I I don't want that. I I want us to to say... What encouragement is there for us? The encouragement, first and foremost, is that Christ has promised on earth that He will preserve you. You have trusted in Him. You will be preserved. What else should we do? Be faithful in your witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If if, if it's bitter for you to hear about those whom you know and love that will be judged, then ask yourself, how faithful am I being to share the gospel with them? Do I really care that much about them that I don't want to see them lost, but I really do want to see them saved, then ask yourself, when was the last time, as God said to Ezekiel, whether they listen or not, that I shared the gospel with them and called them to be saved? Whether they listen or not, God says to the prophet Ezekiel, they will know that a prophet came and spoke to them. You who are here, you will know that a man of God came and spoke to you. Can you say the same about your friends and family, that a man of God, a woman of God spoke to them, whether they listened or not? But I might offend them, but you also might win them. They might cut off a relationship with me, or maybe they might become closer to you. The point from God is whether they listen or not. You're called to be salt and light. You're called to be a witness. You are called to call them to escape before the seven trumpet comes. Take this message to all peoples. Call them to repent of your sin because when the time expires, when God's purposes in this world are complete, there is no more time. I was uh, at a church this past week speaking to a person, I won't say what church, who believes in um, a tribulation. That seems to be time. That seems to be giving people a time to say, okay, now you see these things are true. Now you have time to repent before I come back. Doesn't seem to see, uh, seem to be what God is explaining here in Revelation. He seems to say, They are now taking place, and now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear God's word, if you hear His voice, if the Spirit is speaking to you, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Repent of your sin today. Because when time, God's uh, history and, and plans for redemption are complete, there is no more time. For you, God has promised to preserve you. And for you who know Christ, go and share Him while there is still today. Let's pray.